And we all said amen, right? Lots of good theology in those songs that we sang this morning. Just preparing us for some more theology as we go to God's Word together. And last uh, Sunday, I began a summer sermon series entitled, Why We Come to Church. And I challenged you to ask yourself that question, honestly, why do you come to church? Is it just because that's what you do on Sunday morning? Um, I hope not. If it is what you do on Sunday morning, I hope you know why you do what you do on Sunday morning, why you're here. Maybe a better title would be to this series, The Dearest Place on Earth, based on Spurgeon's quote that despite all its imperfections that he felt the church should be the dearest place on earth for all of us as Christians. Unfortunately, that is not the experience of many Christians. Uh, the church is anything but the dearest place on earth. The church is more like the most unfriendly, rude, awkward, critical, disappointing place on earth. They've either been deeply hurt by the church or they feel like they don't get anything out of church, and so they're either disillusioned with church or they're dissatisfied with church. I'm sure every one of us would admit it that at some point in our Christian lives, we may have experienced those feelings, those emotions of being disillusioned with the church or maybe dissatisfied with church. And I would just ask you this morning, could it be because church in our minds, and our hearts, is too much about us. Could it be? The reason we get disillusioned, the reason why we get dissatisfied is because we've made church too much about us. I want to read some more from this little book that I found so helpful. Uh, it's How to Walk into Church by Tony Payne. Kind of a funny title, isn't it? How to Walk into Church. Who would ever thought of that, writing a book about how to walk in a church? But it's a, it's a great little reminder of, of why we do what we do here. Well, what are we about as the church? And I want to pick up where I left off reading last week, and um, just, these are just the opening pages, and just to set our minds this morning on what I want to share with you, but this is what he writes. If you're to understand what the Bible says about church about what church is and why we go, to, go there and what we're supposed to do while we're there, then there's one particular way of walking into church that you want to master. This way of walking into church beautifully expresses what church is and what it's meant to be and why we're all here. And it's this, you ready? This is what all of us need to master when it comes to walking into church. We should walk into church praying about where to sit. Seems like an odd way to start. If that's the, you got a short little book, there's only so much you can say about church, and that's all, that's what's all you got for me? That you want me to pray about where I sit in church? Well, listen to what he says. Why is praying about where to sit the best way to walk into church? The answer is this, somewhat unexpected, or the answer to this is somewhat unexpected uh, the somewhat unexpected question is simple because it expresses perfectly what sort of thing church is and what we're doing there. 
And he goes on to explain. He says, firstly, whenever we pray, we express the bedrock truth that is the foundation of the church and of everything. God is the gracious, sovereign God, and our lives and purposes are in his hands. He is the Lord whom we serve, and his is the power that upholds the universe. Whenever we pray, we declare our belief in this sovereign, loving God. When we pray, we acknowledge our need, and we put our trust in the God who made us and redeemed us, who rules all things, and who has a purpose for each one of us. This is just as true for church as for any other part of our lives. When we pray about where to sit in church, we're expressing our trust in God for what will happen in church today. We're looking to him and calling upon him as the Lord of the church. We're also acknowledging that God is in charge of every aspect of church and that our ideas and preferences and dreams about what church should be like become a distant second. In other words, it's not about what we think the church should be. It's what God wants the church to be. We all have expectations or desires about what we will do at church and what we will get out of it. But the church is God's, not ours. The church is saved and assembled and ruled by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who calls us together and in whose presence and for whose glory we meet. If we walk into church praying, we're putting ourselves in the right posture or frame of mind towards God. We're turning our hearts to the one who is the center of everything, including And I would add, especially church. That that was just the first thing, is the more vertical perspective when it comes to why we should pray about where we sit in church. But there's also a horizontal perspective. He said, secondly, when we pray about where to sit, we're also putting ourselves in the right frame of mind towards each other. We have started to think about church as being about someone other than me. Let's close in prayer. I mean, is that what it all comes down to? Let's just be honest. When we come to church, our natural sinful tendency is to think it's all about us and what we're going to get out of it, not about everyone else and what we can give to them, how we can serve them. This can be quite a mind shift, Payne says, but it's a vital one. We come to church not only to be loved and blessed by God, but also to love and bless others around us. We come not to spectate or consume, nor even to have our own personal encounter with God. We come to love and to serve. Loving and serving and encouraging those around us is a prominent theme in the Bible's teaching about our role at church. And so when we pray about where to sit, we're trusting that what we do at church really matters, that God has something important for us to do, in particular, someone he wants us to sit next to, talk with, listen to, pray for, and encourage. He goes on in another portion of the book, quoting now again, church is not about me. It's not about the experience I have or what I get out of it. Church is a classic opportunity to love my brothers and sisters who are there by seeking to build them up in Christ. And then he asked this question, is that how you think of church? As a chance to encourage, build up, love, and spur on your brothers and sisters. Be honest, is that how you typically think of church? As an opportunity to to serve? Or is church more about you? And I think that if there's anything that we need to come to grips with is that the church is not about us. 
And we need to remind ourselves of this, especially when we're getting ready to come to church, whether we're showering or shaving or putting on our makeup or, I'm not, I don't put on makeup, you know, talking about the ladies here, um, uh, you know, or, 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 or eating breakfast or driving to church together privately or as a family. And even as you're walking into church, you need to be reminding yourself that this is not about you. And if I could just recommend two verses or passages that as you practically begin maybe a new habit of thinking and and praying as you enter church, as you wake up on Sunday morning and as you get ready and you prepare to come to church uh, as you're driving here, what are some verses that maybe God could use uh, to remind you, to stir you up by way of reminder that this is not about you? How about Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to what? Be served, but to to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I mean, of all the places we want to reflect Christ, be like Christ, be like Jesus, is at church. And so how can we be most like Christ when we come to church? Well, it's coming not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give our lives for others. And so Mark 10, 45, I would encourage you to consider that principle so that church is no longer about you, but it's about others and and, and serving them. How about Philippians 2, 3, and 4? I love Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Paul is talking to the church in Philippi about unity within the body, and he, he says this, do nothing out of selfishness, that's about me, right? Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, pride, in other words, your focus is all on you. Selfishness and pride, you don't want anything to do with that. Do nothing out of selfishness or pride, but with humility of mind, consider others more, what? Important than you. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Can you imagine what kind of transformation would occur in this church if every single person that walked into these doors on a Sunday morning was thinking that everyone else was more important than them. And they weren't just thinking about their own needs and what they needed and what they wanted and what their expectations were, but they were there to see how can I serve other people? I mean, that would have a profound impact on what our experience was in here because we would all be tripping over one another, trying to serve one another and minister to one another. And I guarantee you, nobody would walk out of here going, well, nobody ever talked to me and nobody ever met my needs today. And, 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 and you know, no, I felt left out and nobody talked to me, and, right? Which is unfortunately a, a, a tragedy in the church that there's always people that walk out of a church on a Sunday morning feeling that way. And, and that's true. There are some churches that might be unfriendly and, 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 and uh, insensitive and, and not hospitable as they should be. But, but at the same time, my first thought is, uh, yeah, maybe we did drop the ball. But what was your focus? Were you here waiting for someone to come to you to talk to you and to minister to you? Or did you come with a mindset that I'm, I got my antenna up my radar, I'm looking to minister to people? And it's typically those people that have that, that, that other's orientation, that other's mindset, they walk out of church thrilled. They're, they're so excited because they had so many engaging conversations and, and opportunities to minister to people. They don't go feeling like they go to lunch and have a pity party for themselves. 
Why? Because they did what they were supposed to do. They were thinking of others and serving others. I mean, these are game-changing verses, aren't they? And it's really a game-changing perspective. And um, so I would encourage you that. Mark 10, 45, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Maybe even put those on an index card. Put them in the front of your Bible. Put them on the dashboard of your car. Put them on your mirror somewhere that you'll see, especially on Sunday morning. Begin as parents teaching your kids those verses, helping them memorize those verses, maybe even quoting those verses together as you drive to church, praying those verses together. And um, I, I guarantee you, if we do that, it will be a rare occasion that anybody walks out of here feeling like they were overlooked. Amen? Well, the goal of this author in writing this little brief book, and my goal in preaching this brief series is one and the same, to help people understand what the Bible says about what the church is and why we come here and what we're supposed to do here. And I mentioned last week that during the the first 10 years or so of of our church, we started the church about uh, 16 years ago or so, and uh, I, I exposited very deliberately a number of books that focused a lot on the church, the book of Ephesians, the pastoral epistles, uh, the book of Acts, and uh, preaching through those books really played a critical role in, in laying a foundation uh, of who we are as a church and why we do what we do and why we don't do certain things. And uh, we've noticed over the last few years as the elders and the pastors have talked together and prayed together and other ministry leaders have gotten together that God has really blessed us with a batch of uh, new people here at Lakeside. And and, uh, and, and th- these, these new folks, uh, you weren't here for these foundational series. Um, not to mention our children, our own children who were little um, when we went through those books. So they were a lot younger back then and they're listening to the Word of God in a totally different way uh, this morning. In fact, I was um, feeling very old uh, sitting in the baptism class this morning and listening to these young people, these uh, 13, 14, 15-year-old uh, students sharing their testimony. I'm thinking, I remember you when you were in diapers. I mean, I, you weren't even alive when I first came here. I mean, this is wild to watch God raising up this new generation of young people uh, in our church. And I mentioned last week how the second and third generation of anything, any family, any, any business, any organization, uh, who, who weren't part of the beginning stages, they weren't part of the initial fight uh, they don't necessarily understand the sacrifices that were made. Uh, and, and because of that, there's a tendency to take things for granted. And typically, they don't have a strong of commitment to the core principles on which that family or that business or that organization was established. And so apathy begins to develop, and that apathy leads to atrophy, and complacency begins to develop, which leads to compromise, which, by the way, those things happen in churches all the time. It's rare, unfortunately, for a church to stay strong and true and straight as an arrow and passionate for Christ for years and years and years and years. There always seems to be some spiritual entropy that takes place in in the life of a church. And so as we turn a a new chapter in the life of this church with a a batch of new people who we're so grateful for and, and a virtually brand new pastoral staff, and by the way, Kathy, it's great to have you here. She's not on staff, but she's married to our new student pastor, and welcome, welcome back to Texas. We're so glad you made it last night. Um, 
But, but we're, we're, we're just at a new season in the life of our church. And so I want to I I stir us up by, by way of reminder regarding what the church is and why, why we come here. And we all know there's some, some basic things about Christ and about the church that must never be forgotten, and there's virtue in repeating them. And so I began doing that last week by reminding us of just what does the church mean? What does that word, just the word itself, church, mean? Ecclesia, used 114 times in the New Testament. It's a combination of two words, ek, meaning out, and uh, kaleo, to call or to summon. So the idea here is, is this is a, the church is a group or a gathering of those who have been called out or summoned out by God, someone out of the world, by God, to worship Him and to witness for Him. And we looked at some key verses last week from Matthew to Revelation where the word ecclesia or church is used in reference to the universal, invisible church. That's every believer uh, on every continent in the world that you might not even recognize if you're sitting next to them in a plane or walking by them uh, at Walmart. That's the universal kind of big C church, if you will. And then also that word church is used to refer to the local visible church. Small C churches like Lakeside Bible Church and First Baptist Church and whatever the Methodist Church and all these are small C local visible churches. Well, what I want to do this morning is look at a few more key verses specifically to consider some of the familiar, most familiar ways that the church is described in the New Testament. God used a, a number of vivid pictures or metaphors or symbols uh, to explain this mysterious thing that we call the church. And so by comparing the church to common everyday things uh, that we experience, God intended to provide us with compelling reasons to not be complacent about the church, but committed to the church. And I asked you last week to be honest and take a little survey of yourself and a little evaluation. And if you got a, a scale of one to 10 and one is complacent and 10 is committed, where, where's your heart at uh, in regards to the church? Not necessarily Lakeside Bible Church, but to the church, Christ church. Are you more on the complacent side or are you more on the committed side? Are you somewhere in the middle? And don't cop out with a five. Figure out which way are you leaning, more complacent, more committed. And so I want to look at these, these seven pictures that God used to describe the church that I think at the end of the day should compel us to be connected and committed to the church. And uh, we're using the very same outline that we used last week. We never got to it. Everything was introduction last week. And so we're going to look at these seven pictures. And so we, we see the church is likened to a family. Uh, it's also likened to a body, a marriage, a temple, a, a vine, a flock, and a kingdom. These are just some of the images that are used, probably the most familiar images um, that God chose to use uh, in the pages of the Scripture to describe the church. And so let's look at these together this morning, and we're going to have a little Bible study here, so get your fingers ready here to turn to some passages, or if it gets too uh, overwhelming, just uh, maybe write these passages down. They're, in fact, they're already there in, in your notes, but just listen carefully. So first of all, we see that Christ or God likened the church to a family, 
And specifically that we are an adopted child. You are an adopted child. I am an adopted child. John 1.12, but as many as received him, received Christ, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We see these, uh, this idea of adoption in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That same adoption concept is used by Paul in Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons because you were sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through God. Notice how this imagery changes to a household or a family there in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, while we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. The household of the faith. We're going to see that again in Paul's letters. How about um, there in Ephesians, just moving to the next page or down under the bottom of the page, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, just as God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to what? Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Chapter 2, uh, verse 18, uh, it says that we have access in one spirit to the Father talking about our Heavenly Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You're part of God's family. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. And then chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Then jump over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 but in this case but in the case I'm delayed I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God the church notice which is the church so he compares the church to God's household or God's house and I love what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 1 do not sharply rebuke an older man but rather appeal to him as a father to the younger men as brothers the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity and so the Bible equates the church to a spiritual family and it should look and feel like a family where you have fathers, you have mothers, you have brothers, you have sisters, you have children, you have babies. Um, I've told you how thankful I am for how the Lord has given us a cross-generational ministry, a multi-generational ministry here at Lakeside Bible Church. Because it seems that today the trend in church planting is to kind of target a particular segment of society, a particular age group, whether it's the Gen Xers or the, uh, the 30-somethings. And you can go into some churches today and, and, and you're not going to find anybody over 30 or 35. 
Um, there's, there's no gray hairs. And I think that is just very unnatural. And in fact, it's, I would even submit to you that it's unbiblical to have that dynamic within the body of Christ. Why? Because uh, Paul likened the church to a family. And so it should feel like a family. It should look like a family. What would a family be without grandma and grandpa? What would a family be without mothers and fathers? You don't have just a bunch of college-age kids in a family, right? You, you've got everyone from the, the oldest to the youngest, um, from the diapers to you know, the rest home. You've got them all going uh, together. And so Paul likens the church here to a family. Uh, we should view God as our father. We should view one another as the members of our family. In fact, some churches, maybe churches that you've come from, uh, they literally call each other brother and sister so-and-so. Um, you know, brother Ken, sister Sally, you know, sister whatever. And they actually use those terms, uh, and it's very biblical. Now, I'm not advocating that we use those terms. I don't necessarily prefer you calling me Brother Ken or Brother Ramey. Um, you can call me the right Reverend Ramey. No, I'm just kidding. You don't need to call me that. Um, I prefer Ken, to be honest with you. Um, but the point is that, that I think it will help us to think about one another in this way and relate to one another in this way. You're sitting next to some of those older people that you're sitting next to. They could be, they, they, you need to view them as your spiritual mom and dad or your spiritual grandma and grandpa, or your spiritual children. Some of you older ones sitting next to younger ones, these are your spiritual kids, your spiritual grandkids, and you need to think about one another in that way. And I think it will endear us to one another and cause us to deal with each other in a more loving, caring way as kind of one big happy family. I mean, I don't know about you, but, but, but being at home with my family is my favorite place to be. I mean, it's just comfortable, it's relaxing. I mean, it is the most relaxing place on earth. I'm like wearing, you know, ratty t-shirts and with stains on them and holy shorts and, you know, I don't shave necessarily. I don't necessarily comb my hair, I just throw the hat on, right? I don't even brush my teeth sometimes, I don't take a shower all day, right? You're just, you're just hanging out at home and, and typically your family doesn't care until you try to kiss them and they're like, whoa, you need to go do something because you stink, Okay. But the point is, when you're, when you're with your family, you can just be yourself. You can let your guard down. You don't have to try to impress anyone because you know you're loved and accepted just the way you are, right? And that's the way the church should be. I'm not encouraging that you show up in your pajamas and, you know, with your hair all messed up and you don't brush your teeth, don't shave and all. I'm not suggesting that, okay? But we shouldn't come to church feeling like we have to impress anybody, we should feel relaxed and comfortable with each other. We should have the confidence that we can kind of let our guard down, if you will, and still be loved and accepted no matter who we are or what we've done. I love that song by Casting Crowns about those, uh, you know, pretty plastic people under pretty plastic steeples, you know, however, it says something like that. I'm not a songwriter or a singer, you can tell, right? Um, but, but it's a great concept. There's so much plasticity. We're just plastic. We're not real. We're fake. And everything about church can be so fake. And we put on these facades and we wear these masks and act like everything's okay. And we just say, hey, listen, you don't do that in your home, right? You just let it all hang out. And unfortunately, sometimes there's ungodliness that comes out in your home that would never come out at church or in front of the pastor, right? Um, but hey, let's be honest with this. We need to be real and honest and not be fake and, and plastic. And so 
I mean, God treats us in this way. He loves us. He accepts us no matter who we are, what we've done, and that's the way we should treat each other. And so as members of the family of God, we have this blessing of coming together and being regularly encouraged and held accountable by our, by our family members, our moms and dads, our spiritual daddies, our spiritual mommies, our, 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 our uh, brothers, our sisters in Christ, and, and, and we have the confidence. I mean, there's some security and safety within the family that if we ever rebel against our heavenly father or stray away from the rest of our family, guess what? God will make sure to lovingly discipline us According to Hebrews chapter 12, right, if we're a true child of God, he will discipline us just like a good daddy always spanks his kids, right? He'll do that to us. But he also will use our brothers and sisters to restore us. Matthew 18, when you talk about the church, right? The second time the word church is mentioned in the New Testament, it's relating to how we restore one another within the body of Christ. If your brother sins against you, if you're who? brother sins against you, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your who? Your brother, your sister. But if he doesn't listen to you, then get one or two others to go with you to confirm what's going on. And it says, and if you won't listen to them, then tell it to who? To the church. It's the family matter. Everybody looks down on church discipline. Oh, it's so harsh. It's so judgmental. It's critical. It's unloving. No, it's the most loving thing a family could do for one another. We care so much. We're not going to just let you stray away from the family. And so God has set up a way that he can lovingly go after us in this thing we call the family. So the first picture of the church here is a beautiful picture of the family and that you and I are adopted children. I mean, come on, why wouldn't you want to be a part of that on a regular basis? How can you not get excited about that? That you were a a spiritual orphan, if left to yourself, would have ended up destitute in your life and then ultimately spending eternity in hell, and God, in his grace and mercy, picked you out of the orphanage. He went and picked you, I want that one right there, and he grabbed you out of this orphanage, and he made you his own child and put you as part of his big family. Bunch of fellow orphans in here, right? How blessed are we? What a great mindset to have when you come to church. Secondly, probably maybe the most familiar um, image that we see in scripture uh, or picture about the church, and that is that the church is a body, a body, and we are a needed member. We are a needed member. This body needs you, You need this body, I need you, you need me, we need each other. That's the idea here. Let's look at some verses together again quickly. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet as many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. Look at verse 27 there. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And so Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, lays out this concept that, that we are a body, like a physical body. There's, there's 
There's some of us who are hands, there's some of us who are feet, there's some of us who are ears, eyes, noses. Some, some of us serve a, a behind-the-scenes role. We're more internal parts. You know, you might not see my gallbladder, but I'm sure glad it's doing what it's supposed to be doing in there, right? Or I wouldn't be standing here, right? You, you fill in the blank, right? We all play different roles. We're a body, that, 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 that we're, and we're all an individual member of this body that works together. And then we see... The scriptures emphasize that this body has a what? Head. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him as what? Head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, he continues with this imagery of the body, um, verse 16, well, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, in this section on marriage, Paul once again talks about the church. Verse 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Verse 30 uh, says we are members of his body. And then in Colossians 1.18 Paul simply says it this way, he is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Listen, there's nothing more important than our head. I mean, you can chop off an arm, you can chop off a leg, and you can survive, technically, right? Chop off your head... Sorry, cancel Christmas, okay? It's over, right? There's, you can't survive without your head. That, he's the most, Christ is the most important thing. The most vital connection of human anatomy is the one between the head and the rest of the body. You can't have a, a body without a head. But at the same time, you can't have a head without a body. And so that's where we come in. And Paul likens us to the body of Christ. And, and so we need to understand that the church is a, is a living, breathing organism. It's not a corporation. It's not an organization. And, and, and fortunately, sometimes people assume or expect the church to function like a business or an organization of some sort, a corporation, but it's not. It's a living, breathing organism. And so Paul said God made Christ the head of the church, The head rules everything, controls everything, which means Christ is the one who controls and rules the church. He's the one in charge. Listen, I'm not in charge here. The elders aren't in charge. And by the way, you're not in charge. (laughs) You know, some congregations think, hey, this is the way it is. We're in charge. This is America. This is democracy. And we vote in who we want. And we make decisions based on our vote and the majority rules. And hey, that's just not how the church functions. Christ is the head. Christ is our leader. 
I appreciated so much Kyle's first message this morning to the students, um, talking about them needing a student pastor and uh, somebody to lead them. And he wasn't that person. Christ was. Just to give the young people a mindset, it's not about Kyle, it's not about the student pastor, uh, it's not about me, uh, it's about Christ. Christ is our leader, Christ is our shepherd, our pastor. It's a great perspective. So all of us are like bones and organs and flesh and we're all connected together with sinews and ligaments and joints and God designed each of us to work together in perfect harmony with every other part to cause this church to grow strong and healthy. And you have a very specific function to perform that contributes to the growth of this body. And if you're not doing your part, guess what? The whole body suffers. If I'm not doing my part, the whole body suffers. What you do affects me. What I do affects you. What we do affects one another. We're all part of the same body. It's like husbands realizing that your wife is really part of your body. You're one. The two became one flesh. That's why he says, hey, you know, you take good care of your body, guys. Man, you need to take care of your wife in the same way. Well, guess what? She is a part of your body. So when you hurt her, you're actually hurting yourself. So the church is this living organism made up of a bunch of different people with different gifts that are perfectly coordinated by God to work together for the growth of the whole body. And as each individual person grows, the whole body grows, the entire church grows, and we can't grow apart from the church, and the church can't grow apart from us. We all need each other. So why would you be committed to the church and stay connected to the church? Because you need the church to grow. And guess what? This church needs you to grow. And so it's a body. Number three is a marriage. A marriage. It's another picture here of the church is, is a marriage. That we are a beloved bride. A beloved bride. And I think this is probably the most precious picture that we have in Scripture describing who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says about the church in Corinth, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So he likens the church in Corinth to this virgin bride that he betrothed, preserved, saved, set apart for Christ. Of course, we were just there in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And you're like, well, wait a minute, Paul, I thought this was the passage on marriage. This is the classic passage on marriage in all the New Testament. He's like, oh, by the way, I'm actually talking about 
Christ in the church. Not husbands and wives. I'm really talking about Christ in the church. You say, what's going on there? Well, what is it? Is it, is it marriage or is it the church? Is it the church or is it marriage? Well, what is it? Answer, yes, it's both. They're, they're, they're inseparably intertwined. Just the way God intended them to be, designed them to be. You've all been to a wedding. Have you noticed how there's something almost heavenly about that whole experience of bride and the groom at the wedding ceremony? And what's going on there? It's just, it's just, um, it's, it's iconic. There's just something about that experience that we all love to go to weddings. Well, I think it's because that bride and groom are acting out a divine parable that depicts the relationship between God and us, or more specifically between his son Jesus and the church. And in eternity past, God sovereignly planned that his son would die for those whom he had graciously chosen out of damn doomed humanity to be saved and spend eternity with him in heaven. And in order to illustrate this profound mystery hidden in the mind of God, God created Adam and Eve and ordained the marriage relationship to be a picture of the unconditional, sacrificial, never-ending relationship shared between Christ and his beloved, his church. And so throughout the, the scriptures, we see God comparing his relationship with his people to a bride and groom, to a husband and wife. In the Old Testament, God and Israel were betrothed to one another. In the New Testament, Christ and the church are betrothed to one another. And it really is uh, just biblical imagery that, that um, is rooted in the Middle Eastern marriage customs during biblical times, back then getting married was a lot more elaborate of a process than it is today. And uh, the first stage was betrothal. It was like an engagement period and it was more binding and the terms of marriage would be accepted in the presence of witnesses and God's blessing would be pronounced on the union. And from that day, that man and woman were considered legally married. But there was a process. There was other stages. The next stage was the interval stage between the betrothal and the wedding feast during which the groom would pay the dowry to the father. He'd pay the camels or whatever it was, the cows, the heifers, right, um, for, for the price of the bride, as well as make a place ready for his bride to live. He would build the homestead and the bride would prepare and adorn herself and wait for the groom to arrive at her home with all of his friends singing and carrying torches and then take her to the wedding feast where that would be held and the final banquet would last um, one or two weeks. And so for those of us who are Christians, there's some beautiful imagery here in that we have been betrothed to Christ. He paid the dowry for us, if you will, with his blood on the cross. And he has gone away now to prepare a place for us, and he has left us with the engagement ring, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. The promise that he's coming back to get us. And we're in this interval stage where we must prepare and ready ourselves as we await his return when he'll come and take us to live with him forever in heaven. And on that glorious day, we will stand before Christ as his perfect, sinless, holy bride and enjoy a wedding feast that will last not just a week or two, but for all eternity. And we can see that in Verses like Revelation 19 and Revelation 21, where it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be an amazing feast in heaven, and it's going to be like a, a wedding feast for Christ and His church. 
And so what a, I mean, who, who wouldn't want to be a part of that, right? I mean, don't you always feel, you feel honored, right, just to be a part of the wedding party, right? To be a, a, a bridesmaid or a groomsman and you're just, you get to sit at the head table and, and, and you know, it's, it's just like a special thing, right? Hey, guess what? We're a part of this every Sunday. Every Sunday is like this wedding that we're celebrating between our husband, if you will, Christ and we as the, the bridegroom or the, the bride, I should say. When's the last time you thought about that on your way to church on Sunday? I'm going to a wedding. That's what we're doing. It's like a, a weekly wedding ceremony. We should be reminded of that every week. What a joyous occasion this should be. How about a temple? Number four, a temple. We see this picture in Scripture as well, and that specifically we are a fitted stone, a stone fitted into that temple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul likens his ministry in the church in Corinth to building a building. Verse 9, this is 1 Corinthians 3, 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God which was given me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive reward. If anyone's man, any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Notice how he goes on in verse 16. Do you not know that you are a, what? Temple of God. He's talking to the church. You're a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. By the way, that's not just talking about, you know, hey, you're destroying the temple because you're smoking, you're drinking, you're doing stuff bad to your body, you're eating too much fat, you're doing all, right? That's not necessarily talking about our individual bodies, it's talking about destroying the church of Jesus Christ. Don't mess with the... Don't, don't trash the temple. Normally we associate this with our physical bodies. This is a, you know, don't get tattoos, you're trashing the temple. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about don't trash the body of Christ, the temple. Don't mess with Christ's bride. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul uses this building analogy again. Verse 19, we are God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy, what? Temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And then 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about these living stones, how we are living stones Verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Talking about Christ here. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed 
This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve the stone which the believers rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So the writers of Scripture are very familiar with the analogy of a temple because in the ancient world there were many magnificent temples, including the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And so the Apostle Peter here and 1 Peter and Paul back in Ephesians drew from their experience with these temples and they likened the church to a temple with, with three parts. There's the foundation, there's the cornerstone, there's the stones. And so God is the master architect, the builder of the church. The first thing he did was to carefully lay the cornerstone, which was the first most important stone that you laid. This was the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He then raised up the the apostles and the prophets and placed them on and around the cornerstone, if you will, and then he went to the deep quarry of sin and chose out certain people who who had dead, rock-hard hearts towards him, and he transformed them into living stones, and as his workmanship, he fashions them, shapes them, and one by one, he adds them to the structure of the church, and he will continue that process until the church is complete. Listen, every day, people are being added to the church. Whenever a new person gets saved, it's like another stone that God cut from the quarry of this world, and he's adding it to this magnificent temple that he's building. And I think what's so fascinating about this is that since the creation of the world, God has established, he's always had a place to dwell here on earth where he can enjoy fellowship with his people and where he can make himself known to those who don't know him. He had the garden in the very beginning. He had the garden. Then he had the tabernacle. Then he had the temple. And then when God abolished the separation that originally he had originally ordained between the Jews and the Gentiles and created this, this one new group, the church, the Jewish temple wouldn't do as a place that represented his presence among Jews and Gentiles. The, the temple was just for Jews. And so guess what? He made sure the temple got wiped out in AD 70. Just at the same time when this new race, Jews and Gentiles coming together, something that had never happened before in history, they were needing a temple. But unlike he had done in the past, God didn't send down some spiritual blueprints for a new building project in which he would dwell like he had in the past, but he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within them. So guess what? The church is the new temple of God, that God dwells within us, not this building. This is not God's house, if you will. We are God's house. And we must never forget that God doesn't dwell in a building. He he dwells in us. So bless that old deacon's heart who scolded you when you were running down the hallway in church and said, son, don't run in the house of God. This isn't the house of God, right? Some bricks and stucco and mortar and you're the house of God. We are the house of God. We are the temple. And whenever those in whom the Spirit of God dwells gather together, God is there by the Spirit. Listen, if that doesn't wake you up on Sunday morning and get you excited about coming to church, 
that the Lord is going to be here in our midst when we gather together as the body of Christ, as the temple of God. God is here with us. You're going to meet God here. Be like going to the tabernacle, going to the temple, going to the Garden of Eden and walking and talking with God. So we're a temple. We're a temple. We're also a vine. We'll just do this one real quickly because we, it's fresher in our minds, I would hope, because we just went through the Gospel of John. John 15 talks about how Christ is the vine, we are the branches, we're a connected branch. Jesus said, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he does away. He takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear much more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, no, neither, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And here it is. I am the vine. You are the branches. He abides, he abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit for apart from me you can do what? Nothing. So by coming to Christ... And by coming to the church, right, what are you doing? You're abiding with Christ. This is a very, how do you abide in Christ? So hey, what, is, what does that mean, to abide in Christ? That sounds so, like, out there, ethereal. What does it mean to abide in Christ? I'll tell you one thing it means. It says, come to church. How do you practically abide in Christ? Stay connected to Christ. That's what it means to abide in Christ. You stay connected to Christ. You stay connected to Christ through his church. And if you get disconnected from the church, guess what? You get disconnected from Christ. That's just the way he made it work. And so, apart from the church, apart from Christ, apart from the church, you can do what? Nothing. You, you need the church. You need, this is the vine, right? We're branches. We need to stay connected. So, why should you get up to, and come to church on Sunday morning? Because you're like plugging in, Right? Hopefully you've been abiding with Christ during the week in his word, in prayer, fellowshipping, right, discipling other believers and things like that. But man, when you come to church, it's like you pull in your, 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 te- your new Tesla and you're plugging in, right? You're plugging in your car. You're, you're getting your batteries recharged, right? You're, you're getting juiced up. As, the, as, as Christ flows, right, from the, from the spiritual, spirituality flows from Christ, the vine, to the branches. You miss a few Sundays, and guess what? Your little meter is going to be going like that, right? You're going to need to power up at some point. How about this? Number six, a flock. A flock, we are a returned sheep. Of course, this is a, another very familiar analogy here. John chapter 10, verse 11. John chapter 10, verse 11. Um, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Christ talking here, I'm, I'm the shepherd, you're sheep. Uh, Acts 20, 28 talks about how Christ uh, gave up his life uh, for the flock. Um, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So Christ died for the flock. Hebrews 13 talks about uh, Christ being uh, our shepherd. I love this, this passage, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought you from the dead, brought, brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep to the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus 
our Lord. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Again, talking about Christ. And then there in 1 Peter 5, uh, Peter says to the elders uh, that he's writing to, shepherd the flock of God among you. Not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. This is essentially the same command that Christ had given Peter by the Sea of Galilee. Three times he said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Uh, Then feed my sheep, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep. And now he's passing this on 35 years later to the elders uh, in Asia there. And again, the analogy of a shepherd tending sheep is used throughout the scriptures to describe God's relationship with his people. And there is no better analogy to describe God in us. Why? Because sheep cannot be left unattended. They require constant attention, meticulous care. They're prone to wander away from the fold. They're defenseless against attack. They need a shepherd to look after them, guide them, feed them, protect them, rescue them, help them when they get hurt. And listen, we're, we're all sheep, aren't we? Spiritually speaking. We desperately need a shepherd. And, and, and by the way, that's what a group of elders are called to do. That's what they're supposed to do uh, for the people that God entrusts to their care as the under-shepherds of the chief shepherd. They watch over your soul. They care for you as a shepherd cares for sheep. A great analogy here. Again, you're a sheep wandering around during the week. Why, why, why do you need to come to church on Sunday morning? It's like, hey, I need to, I need to come back into the fold here. I need to, I need to catch up with the shepherd. I need, I need some care. Um, I need my wool combed out. I got a bunch of burrs in it, you know, or I got a broken leg or I sprained my whatever, you know, and I got to come in here and I got to get mended up by the shepherd or, or maybe the shepherd has to come out and get you because you got stuck or you got stolen um, and he finds you kind of ravaged on the side of the road, but because of sin, and you know, that's what that's why you need church. Church is like coming back into the fold and getting cared for and loved on and and and, and nurtured by the shepherds. Ultimately, Christ through his under shepherds, the pastors and elders. Then, lastly, a kingdom. A kingdom is another image that we see in the scriptures. We already saw this in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, we are, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, who, uh, wait for a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, we read this last week. Before communion, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the, blood of the Je- by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is promised uh, is faithful. We have this idea that, that we are uh, coming into the presence, entering the holy place. By the way, who's the only person that can enter the holy place? Typically, it was the high priest once a year, right? 
Now he's telling all of us to come into the holy place. What's up with that? Well, look at um, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal what? Priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession. And then, of course, the book of Revelation uh, highlights this over and over again. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, and he's made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And you see it in chapter 5, you see it in chapter 20, uh, 20, verse 6, again, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over these, the second, death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the idea here is that God likens the church, his people that he's rescued out of this world as a king, as as kings and as priests. And if Christ dwells in your heart, if you've repented of your sin and you've trusted Jesus Christ, then Christ's kingdom reigns in your heart right now. It's not like Christ's kingdom is going to reign sometime in the future. It will, literally, physically during the millennium in Israel. But right now, God's kingdom is alive and well in your heart and in the heart of every citizen of heaven. You're no longer an alien. You're no longer a stranger. You're part of this heavenly kingdom over which God rules. And you are not just a citizen. It goes beyond that. You're a priest. You have direct access to God. And that's the privilege that Christ secured for us through his death on the cross. And when he died on the cross, the veil in the temple that separated the temple of the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in half. It was divided. It was gone. And so now now we have direct access to God. This is what historians and theologians have referred to as the priesthood of all believers. Are you familiar with that expression? The priesthood of all believers? This is something that Martin Luther, it dawned on Martin Luther as he was studying the, 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 the New Testament as a Catholic monk and, you know, studying to be a priest and in the Catholic Church, it's still that way even today that you have the priest and he's the, the one that is kind of the go-between between the people and, and God. He's the mediator. And, and, and what Martin Luther said, well, look at the scripture. Scripture says, you know, that everyone in this, in this church is a priest. Spiritually speaking, they, they don't need me. They don't need to come through me to get to Christ. They can have direct access to Christ. I'm not the only one serving Christ. All of us are serving Christ, right? That's what it means, the priest of all believers. And so as Jesus Christ served in the role of both priest and king, we also share in Christ's priesthood and kingship. We are a group of priests and kings who are called to serve and ultimately reign with Christ. Now, why wouldn't you want to be reminded of that every Sunday? That you're a, you're a king and you're a priest in God's kingdom, and someday you're going to reign with him. And Christ's kingdom is alive and well, even though our country may be unraveling at, at, at its seams as we talked about. Guess what? Christ's kingdom is alive and well, and it's alive and well right here and right here, right, in our lives and in this church. And so you need to be reminded of that. When you come together as the body of Christ, this is the kingdom of God. And we're being reminded that we're part of this kingdom, that we're not citizens of this earth. We're not American citizens per se. We're citizens of heaven. 
And so we stay focused on what we're to stay focused on. And so, having said all that, in one sense, the church is all about us. When you think about it, that we're, we're adopted children and we're needed members, we're a, a beloved bride. I mean, the wedding is all about the bride, isn't it? It's not about the groom. We're a fitted stone. We're a connected branch. We're a returned sheep. We're, we're an exalted priest and king. So in one sense, the church is about us, but ultimately, it's about who? Christ. It's about Christ. And it's about others. It's about others. And so there's both a, a vertical dimension to church and there's a horizontal dimension to church. We gather to exalt Christ, but also to encourage one another. But also to encourage one another. And I promise you, if you come to church with those two things on mind, on your mind and in your heart, that I'm here vertically to exalt Christ, and I'm here horizontally to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ, you'll walk out of here blessed. You won't walk out of here bummed. You won't walk out of here sad, feeling unloved, uncared for. You will walk out of here blessed because you've done what you're supposed to do here. You're not here to spectate. You're not here to consume. You're here to worship, and you're here to serve. Let me close with one more quote from Tony Payne's How to Walk into Church. It kind of summarizes some of what we've talked about this morning. He says this, God's extraordinary purpose in Christ was not just to save you and me through the once for all work of Christ, but also to save and gather a great congregation of people for himself. When we stand forgiven before God through the work of Christ, we don't stand alone. As we enter God's presence, we find ourselves in a vast company of forgiven sinners just like us who have been cleansed and justified through the blood of Jesus. There's a whole family of us who can now draw near to God with dumbfounded joy on our faces and the name of Jesus on our lips. That's why we're here. So why do we go to church? He asks the most basic reason we go to church is simply that we belong together around God. It's what we were made for and what God has saved us for. His whole purpose in Christ is to save and gather his people around himself and our local churches are the manifestation of that purpose here and now. To put it another way, we have been adopted into God's eternal family. Families hang out together, talk together, share joys and sorrows, eat together and generally love each other. It's what families do because they share such a deep bond with one another. And likewise with the church, except that the bond we share is far more profound. It's a spiritual family bond created by God himself through his spirit and Christ. You could say that our local weekly church meetings are like a long-running weekly family dinner in preparation for the gigantic family reunion that is coming when the day finally dawns. He says that's what we're walking into when we walk into church. A family gathering that God the Father himself has called together as part of his majestic plan to save and gather his people around the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. 
Father, we're thankful for these um, amazing images that you've given us in the pages of Scripture that should compel us to come to church, to, to know that we're walking into a, a family every time, uh, that we're connecting to the body, um, we're, we're celebrating a wedding, if you will, we're being built together as this temple, and we're, we're reconnecting with the vine and being charged up spiritually and, and, and sustained spiritually, and uh, we're, we're a, a sheep that's getting cared for and loved and nurtured, and, and, uh, and, and we're just uh, coming together to celebrate the kingdom, your kingdom. Lord, I pray that these images would be more than just images in our minds, but they would be compulsions, convictions, Lord, that would just make us want to be connected to the church and committed to the church. Uh, Lord, because, Lord, how blessed are we to be a part of these things? And so, Lord, I pray that uh, you would work a work in individual hearts, maybe who have grown weary of church, maybe who are disillusioned with church, maybe dissatisfied with church, Lord, that they would maybe admit today that they've made church too much about themselves and not, as, not enough about Christ and others. And Lord, that you would just help us have that mind change, Lord, corporately, that when we come together, it wouldn't be about us. It would be about you and it would be about each other. We pray you do this for your glory so that this church would reflect Christ in the way that he intended, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.